this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. Back with us, Jay. He's been off on adventures near and far, interviewing folks around the world, and he's returned from his latest Like adventure. a time traveler. He's a time yeah. he's, He time travels. <laughs> he, uh, he, um, he's a shapeshifter. Uh, really? I, I don't know. Well, you have to be to interview with a wide variety of, of, of artists that he does. That's true. And of course, we're speaking of Chip Midnight. Welcome back, Chip. Thank you. Thank you. Always, always happy to be back. Who have you rounded up for us this time? This time around, it's Mr. G Love of G Love and the Special Sauce fame. Yes. Gerald Love. <laughs> is, do we know his first name? Uh, we do. It's Garrett. 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 Love. Garrett okay, I'd go with G as well. Yeah. That's yeah. cool. Um, I remember G Love. I remember the, I think it was the first album or it was whatever the album that was like serviced heavily to college radio in the mid 90s. It was in this, it was around the same ballpark at our radio station that we got in like Big Ass Truck and Soul Coughing. And there were these artists that like we couldn't quite figure out how they fit in, but they were all weird in the same way. Um, and you know, I would even put, uh, you know, some of the, um, some of the John Spencer stuff is in that same vibe with the blues and sort of a different take on the blues. So, um, Jay, Chip, were you guys listening to G Love at all? Do you you remember from back in the nineties? No, but I I have the same point of reference that you do is. They were one of the bands that it was kind of quirky, but also accessible and fun. Like yeah. college music, I guess at the time that made sense. Um, but I, I don't know. I'm sure I've heard them, but uh, not super familiar. Yeah. I think I got the, uh, the debut CD from a Sony college rep in Columbus. And one of my many visits with my, <clears throat> almost like a Halloween bag, you know, it's like, Hey, fill, fill up my bag with CDs and uh, G love. The special sauce debut was one of the one of the CDs that ended up in that bag. And coincidentally, I still have the CD. And before interviewing him, I, you know, pulled up Spotify and went through sort of his 90s output. And uh um I definitely I'm pretty sure that I must have gotten a few promo CDs because I was actually surprised at how much I remembered and recognized from some of the second and third albums. So but uh, you know one of the things that we do talk about is, you know, the first album came out in 94 and mm-hmm. he actually released four albums in the 90s. Yeah. He's busy. Yeah. So when you start in 94 and putting out four, that, that's, all, that's a pretty hefty output. Yeah. For sure. Especially in the 90s, things started to slow down. It seemed and bands were 
going multi-year cycles between records. So, so we've talked about we've talked about this on the podcast before, and we had Christopher Thorne from Blind Melon, but and we actually talked about it during during the interview with G Love. Um, you know, Blind Melon was on the road for that first album for like I want to say two and a half, three years. Uh, you know, they they did the the tour cycle, and then No Rain became a hit, and they went back out. Um, not every band was like that, and and G Love tells me about how. You know, for him, the cycle was put out an album, tour for a year, get back, put out the next album, tour for a year. So for him, it was pretty steady. You know, it sounds like the record company was sort of demanding that that that, that was sort of the cycle that he kept up with um, in lieu of having like a huge, huge hit like No Rain or anything like that. So hardworking, like live artist primarily. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. He talked about live being an important, a very important part of the stuff. And yeah. Uh, you guys will hear, and you know, I think it's one of the first things we talk about in the interview. Uh, the bands that that you know, for my memory of '94 and the G Love album was that it really was different than a lot of the other stuff that I was listening to at the time. And he mentions some artists that uh, that he kind of considered to be his peers. And and as soon as he said them, with that 28 years of uh, listening experience under my belt. Uh, I definitely heard what he was talking about, but I don't know that I would have said that in 1994, but it, it totally makes sense to me now. So I will say the other thing is that he's got a, a brand new record, uh, Philadelphia, Philadelphia, Mississippi. Uh, you can sort of guess what the, uh, the two influences are for that record. Um, <laughs> he recorded in Mississippi with a bunch of blues musicians with um, Luther Dickinson, uh, Jim, uh, who's in the North Mississippi all-stars. Uh, Luther's dad, Jim, produced one of the first couple G-Love albums. And yeah, so like the second one, I think, yeah. uh, Coast to Coast Motel. So it was sort of kind of full circle for him. And, um, and uh, I, I will say there's a, there's a bunch of special guests on it. And it's really a fun, I mean, it, it, coming out in the summer was a perfect time. It's really a fun album. It really came together during lockdown pandemic. He said that since he couldn't go out and tour, they were doing, I think he was calling them soul Bacues where he'd get a bunch of friends together, um, have, a, have a cookout and play music. And the idea came from that. It's just a bunch of friends getting together in the summertime, having a good time, eating barbecue and playing blues and soul music. So that's kind of the inspiration for the album. Nice. And, you know, I know you guys are really deep into this stuff. I'm not. Um, I'm just kidding. Maybe you are. I don't know. But the, the new album is available as an NFT, which means nothing to me, other than I see those letters pop up all the time. But huh. um, National if you football want to know more team. about it, yes, I would, I would recommend uh, uh, Googling Philadelphia, Mississippi, NFT and figure out what that's all about. He does, he does plug it at the end, so there's more information at the end of the episode. Interesting. That's all right. Well, cool that he's innovating. Yeah. I, don't, I still don't really understand NFTs, but... Um, <laughs> well, I thought I did. I thought I kind of understood them until, until you just told me somebody released an album as an NFT, and now I'm starting from zero. So. Yeah, now I'm confused because yeah. I thought it was a visual medium, and now you're telling me that audio was released. So is air going to be released or water as <laughs> well, My an understanding NFT? was it was like, an ex, like um, a proof of ownership when like, right. you own this one thing. So I guess you can... It's like owning a CD, maybe? You want to uh, maybe there's a limited copy of them. I don't know. Yeah, I I'm need to not research. exactly sure. The one thing, the one thing also I'll mention is that both um, in this interview and the last one with Art from Everclear, I've I've started working that question into my repertoire of questions with these guys. Um, and so he does give some some other artists that uh, he thinks are worthy of it digging out at some point. So 
you'll get to hear those artists as well. Excellent. Oh, excellent. Cool. All right. Well, thank you, Chip. And let's get to your interview with G Love. So the one thing I definitely do want to do is kind of go beyond the Wikipedia page because, you know, there's basic information there and that's your background and all that kind of stuff. And I was writing for a local magazine in Columbus, Ohio in the 90s and had a lot of good friends who were Sony college reps. So every time I'd go to their house, I'd walk out with a box full of CDs that they were giving out to to local people. And so that's how I first became aware of Trevor Stout. Oh, cool. Uh, Now, what I find uh, fascinating in retrospect is you put out a lot of music in the nineties and you didn't really put out the first album until 94. Yeah. That's a uh, pretty yeah. impressive. Yeah. Well, thank you, man. And thanks. I'm glad that you got, uh, that, that you got your copy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that, that, um, yeah, right. That was the good old days of, uh, major labels and, uh, you know, it was a pretty huge situation to go from, you know, street musician to, uh, all of us were street musicians, Jim, Jeff, and I, to go in and signing a major label deal with uh, you know, Epic, uh, OK slash Epic Records, which of course was owned by Sony. So we went from kind of being on the fringe of society to uh, all of a sudden working for one of the hugest corporations in the world. I mean, talk about a fucking like head trip, you know? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, just as far as like the amount of material, um, yeah, we, we um, yeah, you know, like I've kind of my primary deal is that i've i just got kind of been been a songwriter you know and and um and so um yeah i write a lot of songs and um and so i always felt like when we signed with sony like you know like i just was constantly writing and i just felt like they could never keep up with me um because you know the it's for a reason like it's cyclical they have to put out a record like you know once every year a couple years or something and they want you to tour it and you want to tour on it for you know a year or two and and if you're having success with the record you should tour it longer i mean and i I, yeah looking back like you know i probably should have stopped you know trying to make so many records and you know really kind of work the ones that we put out a little better especially that first record because i feel like we probably came off uh, promoting and working that to make our second record sooner but yeah i'm I'm rambling but yeah I, I basically like i wrote a lot so we made a lot of records and we made a lot of records that didn't even get put out or we put out as bootlegs so i yeah. did a lot of sessions and there's a lot of great songs on them so um you know some had commercial success and some were underground and some were kind of not so hot and some were brilliant yeah uh so uh, you know i don't know if this is a cool thing but the the quote-unquote cool thing with me being able to interview artists from the 90s is that we're all sort of the same age i interview a lot of younger bands these days that don't have all the stories that you have but uh so you and i kind of 
I'm, I'm like six months older than you. So we sort of grew up in the same musical climate. Yeah. Uh, by ni- 94 was a weird time, right? Like we were sort of post grunge, but we right. were, you know, pre boy bands and it was all like alternative was this huge. Well, well, what happened was that we came through and played the Crocodile Cafe in, in Seattle and killed grunge. We ended it. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, it, but but I was saying like so so when you got signed, like from my memory of '94, you were pretty unique. I mean, there wasn't a lot of of artists doing what you were doing, and it fit. It could have fit into sort of some blues. It could have fit into some hip hop, but it it all ended up falling under alternative music. I think. Right. Yeah, I mean, so th- that's a great um, point to bring up, and and one that I kind of have thought about a lot while I was living as my young self in 1994 and, and now kind of looking back at, at like kind of with a kind of musical historian's view. And are, are, you, are you familiar with like the, the, uh, the book, uh, The Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell? Uh, no. Well, it's, it's really cool, but he, he just talks about like how certain people like the outliers that have done great or terrible things. Um, here's a great example, like Steve Jobs and and Bill Gates. They graduated uh, within a year or two of each other and lived a couple miles from each other uh, where they grew up. And so, how did those two become some of the greatest, you know, computer minds? And well, it's because they they grew up by where like uh, Xerox was based, and there was people throwing away like the most primitive computers and stuff and they were fiddling around and then you know so anyhow like there's a lot of situations like that like why did people create the stuff that they did and a lot of it has to do with how they grew up and when and where so the reason i bring it up is that in 1994 three records came out that were really interesting so our record came out the same time beck's record came out and then the roots uh followed up and got signed um just after us um, although they were kind of more established in Philadelphia than we were, but we happened to get the deal first, which they were super salty about. But so if you think about those three bands, right, back G Love and the Roots, and and think about how that was basically alternative hip hop. The Roots were were, um, you know, they we grew up twenty blocks apart. We all graduated nineteen ninety one from high school in the city of Philadelphia, and both of us ended up doing unique things with hip hop. They uh, were black kids that that um, wanted to, but they were a lot. They went to Kappa, the Creative Arts Performing Academy, so th- they wanted to make uh, use their instruments to make sounds like was coming off the hip hop records that they were growing up with. Me, I was like a white kid in Philly, and I was like part of hip hop, like I was graffiti writing and break dancing and skateboarding. So hip hop was always part of my culture or I was engaging in it, I should say, but I never thought of myself as a rapper. I was like a folk singer and a blues guy. But one night I started rapping the lyrics for my favorite song, paid in full Eric B and Rakim over a blues riff. And then, and then, and then I knew it at that point, I was like, Oh shit. It was like the sky opened up, you know, and the lights shone down, you know, and it was like, ah, and I knew I was the only, you know, white kid rapping playing a dobro in the world at that moment until, uh, my, we started I put the band together a couple years later because that was in 91, the summer, right? And then, or that was in the summer of 92. Then by the next summer, I had the band and we started making our record. Well, the producer, Dave Johnson, said, I'm going to go to LA and shop the record, right? 
Well, he got back and so was, well, how did the meeting go? Do we get, are we getting a deal? He goes, no, there's another white kid that plays guitar and raps. We're like, what? <laughs> I, who is it? I don't know. Some guy named Beck, but yeah, he's getting signed and you're not. But late, later on, we got signed. But then, so like every piece of press that was written about us in, the, in 1994 was like a comparison of like G-Love and, and Beck. And the funny thing is I've never, ever met him in person. Really? <laughs> But of course, like his trajectory and mine were a lot different. Obviously, he had a lot larger commercial success than we did. And we did really well. But like he's, you know, obviously got. But his record was a lot different. It was loops and and uh, it was kind of a bigger production. Ours was really garage band. Yeah. But so anyway, long story short is it's really interesting to think about why in 1993, those three records were made, and in 1994, they all came out, right? The Beck, G-Love, and the Roots, they all did something alternative with hip-hop that really kind of opened the doors for a lot of different, um, you know, so so basically, why did that happen? Well, because we were the first generation of kids that grew up, second, we were the first generation of kids that grew up listening to hip-hop, right? right? First generation of kids that made hip-hop. We listened to it, and then it came out of us in weird ways, right? So it's, it's really interesting. And it's probably not too different around that time period as well. Like Rage Against Machine took hip hop and metal and 311 took hip hop and reggae. Right. And and so you're right. I think I, I hadn't thought well, about reggae, that until like, yeah. Cause Rage was first actually. Yeah. Cause I remember like being like into my thing and like someone playing Rage for me at a party. And to me, that was kind of scary. Cause it was like heavy rock, but yeah, totally. I should definitely include the, them and um, 311. Yeah, I guess so too. Yeah. And I don't necessarily think, I, I think you're right. We're all that same age and we all grew up with, um, uh, yo MTV raps, headbangers ball, 120 minutes. And so that all makes sense. By the way, did this three, so three eleven came out before sublime. Yeah. Um, I believe so. Yeah. Cause the sublime came out. So then three eleven kind of started it right in the OC in the orange County. And then they spawned a whole kind of movement that sublime probably and and like no doubt which later led to like slightly stupid and the, and what's now like a huge part of like our culture the Amer the american reggae yeah yeah right so again us being the same age and i don't know if this is the way you grew up but i i grew up in you know i remember like uh stadium rock stars and arena rock stars and i just assumed by 94, my thinking was different, but you know, late eighties, I was thinking every rock star signed a million dollar contract, bought a mansion, drove a Ferrari, took a private jet, did it, dated a supermodel and did a ton of drugs. Uh, so what, so what was, what, <laughs> so what, what was reality for you when you signed the record deal? Yeah. I mean, reality for us was, well, I mean, we got a $250,000 advance. The record was pretty much halfway, mostly done actually. We did do another like two week session that that winter of ninety three, um, like in December, and then the record came out that spring. And then we hit the road in a van, and late, and then later in the year got a second van, and we rode around in those vans for, you know, I don't know about five years till we till we moved into a tour bus. But we grant we and 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 it was just fucking whirlwind like the the because you have to you know you know i know but people don't maybe don't realize like when 
the major labels in the 90s were like at their peak so they were just cranking out they had so much money and they had so many people working for them all across the world and you were expected to go to all the markets so you're trying you put out a record and you're basically going because you got to do all the u.s and then go to australia and then you got to go to europe and then you got to go to japan for press and then go to australia for press and then go back to japan for tour and then go to Europe for press and then come back to the US and then go back to Europe tour and then play the festivals. So like it was just a total spin out and um and it was exciting, but it was also like exhausting, you know, and and um and you know like I said I was 20 so I was like a kid and um uh, yeah I mean it was a lot of fun. Like my best friend from <laughs> from high school was like my merch guy. So he was out with me and like you know, they put us in like in Europe, they put us in like every red light district. They had a stain in there. So you can only imagine the terrible things we got into as 20, 20 year old, you know, single oh, sure. per diem in our pocket. <laughs> but like, yeah, I mean, it was it was a lot of partying, but it was but again, it, it was also like mostly about the music. Like, I mean, the shows were awesome and the touring schedule was grueling. Um, I don't know if. I don't, I wasn't making much money because, um, you know, when you first start out, you generally don't go straight to stadiums. You're playing the clubs and, you know, you're not, you're not getting, when you first start out, the promoters, even if you're hot, like they kind of take advantage of you and, and you know, they could have a sold out room, but you're only making $2,000 or whatever. And you're feeding the, you know, paying the band and the flights and everything else that comes along with touring. And um and the and the percent and the commissions from the managers. So like basically like I remember so after doing all that for a couple of years, we came home uh in ninety-eight, kind of came home from a European tour to my then manager and his pulled up to his loft on Tribeca and on uh, Franklin Street in Tribeca in, in New York City. And we get out of the cab and I I go, with the cab stops, I go, come on, pay pay the cab, let's go. <laughs> He goes, what? So you can owe me another two hundred fifty thousand dollars? I said, what? He said, yeah, you owe me two hundred fifty thousand dollars in in unpaid commissions and fifty thousand dollars in unpaid uh, you know expenses. Well, I had no idea. He had stopped fucking to the account years ago. <laughs> he, they had been just flying, and I've been accruing all this uh, interest. So again, the, the you know, I, I the label actually bailed me out of that, and I I. Uh, parted ways with with him and um but you know what i'm saying like that just gives you an idea like i'm yeah. out grinding and grinding this grueling schedule and i ended up being in the hole two hundred fifty thousand dollars <laughs> i mean crazy so um, the 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 myth and the reality were two two different things i think a better way to put it is it's a long way to the top if you want to rock <laughs> <laughs> that is that is a the truest statement I've heard. Uh, I interviewed Blind Melon really early in their career. Uh, became friends with them. Ended up seeing them 14 times in Ohio. Wow. And that was all on the first record. To your point, you know, they were out, they were out, they were out. And then they were just re getting ready to come off the road and No Rain became a single. And then all of a sudden they were back out. They toured nonstop for like two or three years. It's insane. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like, that's why our thing is like my manager will sometimes remind me it's a young man's game because I don't know if you just saw my two little kids just kept kind of I'm babysitting while we're doing it. And, um, 
yeah, it's just obviously things are different now that I'm that I'm going to be 50 next year in October, I should say, and I have four kids. <laughs> right. Yeah, I got it. You know, there, there's no possible way that I'm going to be on tour for you know two years straight. Like I, you know, I want, I want, there's things that come along like family and yeah. I mean, along basically along the way you grow up, right? So when we're all 20 years old and single and partying and things are taking off that's every you put everything into that so when that happens you're it's a go and so then along the grow up and then you know things change as the far as and then it becomes a balancing act like you have your life and then you have like your career which you know sadly a lot of those people's careers are gone including shannon and actually my my old um tour manager ricky De, richie debraccio he was like their guitar tech or their drum I don't know about him. Oh, he was, what's the guitar player's name from Flymount? Uh, so there's two. There's Roger Stevens and Christopher Thorne. And Christopher lives in New Jersey, right? You know? Uh, I think Rogers does. Christopher oh. built has a studio out in um in um Joshua Tree and, and records like oh, um cool. Afghan Wigs and other bands now. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay, anyway, um so yeah, Rogers then we we become we see him every every once in a while. He comes around. Oh, nice. So, um, it, it, and to that point, so it, it it's also impressive that you kept for you know you kept with a label for four albums. Uh, the reason Dig Me Out podcast has produced five. six, or yeah, five. The reason Dig Me Out podcast has produced uh, six hundred episodes in the uh, about nineties bands is that there was not a shortage of music, and there was a ton of bands that never got that second chance. So, what was your right. secret? What was your secret to sticking with a label for for five albums? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, we just it was the because we had some some, you know, the first record was a success, right? That record, although it did take a while, that record sold, you know, basically like at least a thousand copies for like, I don't know, 15 years in a row, a week, yeah. 15, 1500 copies a week for. So, you know, the the record that record sold that record went gold that's my only like certified gold record and but it's closer probably like eight hundred thousand or above that um and then um and our second record coast to coast motel uh that was kind of a commercial failure you know so that that was tough when that happened because you know we didn't realize that like we we didn't realize that we were having success that was kind of the fact when i look back like we didn't realize we're having success because we're just in a van, like with our head down. So you didn't really have any concept that things were, you know what I mean? It was just oh, a yeah. grind. But then when the, then when, but then you realized when the second record came out and kind of, it was lukewarm. Then you realize, Oh shit. Like then a lot of, then like, you know, the reps at Sony wouldn't be as excited to see you and there wouldn't be the limousines and, you know, oh yeah, no, we're not doing a dinner tonight. Oh yeah, you have some press. Oh yeah, the record's not doing so well. Like it was just like, wow, that was kind of it was. And then I got like, we get like sick. <laughs> and, like you know, I mean, it was like Spinal Tap. Like this is nasty. I remember like I broke my tooth on the mic. I had a sty. I had a fucking cold sore. I was like a mess. <laughs> 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 but like, uh, you know, man, like, um, but then our. Then I then I fired my band because we just started getting at each other. So Special Sauce broke up after the second record release. 
during that tour, we finished it in Boston. And I said, guys, I'm going home. I'm not doing this with you two anymore. So I went home and put together my high school band, which was another complete disaster. Although we recorded a hits. And so the third record had like, it was a kind of a comeback record, like back to like, first record was hip hop. Second record was the blues. The third record was, uh, was, um, was back to the hip hop. And that record sold more. And then Philadelphonic, it was their fourth record, which kind of launched Jack Johnson's career. And that had a, that had the Rodeo Clowns collaboration with Jack, which was a big single for us. And that record sold really well. So, I mean, all these records sold hundreds and hundreds of thousands of copies. And then our fourth, and then, and then I'm almost done. And then this, cause this is interesting. So when we put the record out, right. And that was the Jack Johnson thing. And we all know how big Jack is now. And so we had his first single and, um, it was just another stupid thing. Like the label, like, so Jimmy jazz, the bass player, he refused to be in the video because he wasn't on the track. And my manager was new and always was fighting with Jimmy jazz. So he just stuck his heels in the ground and kind of like threw Jim under the bus, to the label and said, well, Jim doesn't want to be in the video. Uh, so the label was like, well, well, then we're not doing a fucking video. You know, and they just pulled the string on like our biggest single ever. They pulled the video when when videos mattered. So like and then on top of that, it was like all the money was going into, you know, like um, there's always somebody like there was like sure. Mace Gray or there was uh, what was that? Um, the kind of pop singer girl. I don't know. There's a million of them, but like kind of predecessor to Taylor Swift. And or like the woman that's saying like you gotta be re- Desiree, you gotta be real, you gotta oh, yeah. be what? Like, there's always somebody that they were pushing the button on, uh, and then it was, and then it wasn't us. So the last record we did with Sony was Electric Mile, and that was a record where we had just said, you know what, fuck it, man, like we're not trying to deliver a radio single because we just fucking delivered a radio single, like. And you, and also, I brought Jack Johnson to you and said you should sign him. And Michael Kaplan, you know this, who signed me, who I love, and both, you know, has really like turned me off. Um, you know, I, I gave him a huge opportunity where he would have been still had a good career right now, which he doesn't. Yeah. But um, you know, what I'm saying like I brought Jack. Said you should sign this kid. He goes, "Is he a rock star?" I go, "Well, not like Elvis or me, but like." He's got a he's got a hit record. I know he does, and he did. Yeah, and sure. like, um, hey, so you know what I mean. So after that, we got dropped. It seems to be sort of, and not every not every band has this story, and every artist I've talked to, but there was a lot of stories in the '90s of, um, you you one day get the call, or you go into the office where somebody says, "Yeah, the entire staff has been wiped out, and we're starting new, and they've got new priorities." Did you experience that? Yeah, I mean. Well, I mean, we, yeah, we switched personnel. I remember one conversation with our, actually, this guy passed away. His name was Jacques. He was our product manager at Sony. And um, I remember him going, like, it was about the third record. And he was, he was, he's, he was like, you know, this record's kind of make or break for you. Like, if you don't, like, deliver, you know, you're really going to be fucked or whatever, something like that. I, I just remember that. I just, I just, yeah, I just remember kind of the, 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 like I said, it was like that first, the first debut on Sony was like kind of just 
pretty magical looking back. And then, you know, things kind of, once they got challenging, it was, and then you're like in the machine and they're having some problems like selling records with you or just not getting what they want out of you, you know, then, then shit just kind of got, wasn't as fun, but, um, they didn't have the major turnovers at, at the labels that, that I experienced in the nineties, like in the two thousands, every, it seems like every, you know, after Napster and nine 11, that's when everybody got cleared out as far as, as I know, but like, you know, we got dropped in October of 2001, right after nine 11. So between Napster and nine 11 and the stock market crashing, you know, the labels clean house of all the uh, like developing artists. Right. Which was yeah. the people, people, people always, what's a, what, what's a developed? Well, the art, the labels had so much money that they'd sign developing artists, which is basically them saying, well, you don't have a hit, but we think you might get one eventually. So we're going to sign you. So we were like one of those artists and, um, well, you can, whether we had hits or not, or that they couldn't exploit, but you know, we didn't have huge commercial success. So we got dropped. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I was at a, um, South by Southwest panel, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. And somebody sort of asked that question about, there were some major label heads up on the stage and somebody asked a question and asked about, uh, about developing artists, you know, um, I think they use Tom Petty as the example, like Tom Petty out of the gate did not have big hits and it took a while right. to become Tom Petty and whatever label it was, maybe universal or Island. Um, it made me laugh so hard. The guy was like, well, yeah, we've been developing the killers. I mean, they're already on their second record and we gave them time to like the killers are not a developing, like you put a lot of money into them from day one. Like that's not in my mind, a, a developing artist. Well, didn't they, didn't the killers come out with a huge hit, like on their yeah. first record? Yeah. Right. And that was his example of how they're, how they're putting, you know, they're giving the killers a long runway before they really expect a lot out of them. Like they that's, already a got that's a terrible example. Yeah. But, but, actually, but just going to your example of Tom Petty. And then if you read the books of like Bruce, I just finished Bruce Springsteen's book. I mean, it's it, Bob Dylan was a developing artist, right? Yeah. I mean, Bob first record was a failure. And then, you know, John Hammond was, Kind of like it was his first like thing that didn't really one of his first non successes as was Bruce right yeah. but they those guys yeah it, it's interesting the whole developing artist thing you know making records is um, look if everybody including the Beatles if every song that anybody from the Beatles to Stevie Wonder to Bruce Springsteen to the Killers to G Love wrote was a hit. If it was just like that easy, like, no, it's not that easy for anybody, right? right. Maybe for the Beatles. I mean, there's great songwriters that, that have track records of making a lot of a lot of hit records, but even those guys, like, not everything they write is a hit, you know what I mean? Right. So just like, um, yeah, I mean, it's just really interesting to, to just, it's so funny, like, when you, you know, you're making a record of, on the expectations even now of like you know your management or the independent labels and like yo i'm trying to make a hit man like i thought this was a hit when i was making it <laughs> don't think it's a hit all right fuck you. <laughs> yeah yeah uh so sort of one more question about the 90s and it'll segue into beyond 90s so um again in the 90s like I remember going to a ton of like radio, alternative radio station festivals where it was a mishmash of, of stuff. I, I imagine you probably played a lot of those. Yeah. 
what was uh what were some of the 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 biggest mismatches of bills that you ended up whether it be a a radio festival or even a tour did you go out with anybody that was like this does not work at all well i don't know i mean i don't know about it, it always seemed to work but like we were on some pretty cool tours like oasis and this other band from england with the i never i mean i know i remember the front woman was named sonia aurora does that ring a bell big english act with like a female like an indian woman lead singer like really pretty woman i don't know but oasis was like really mean to those guys on the tour but they were like nice to us because like we were american and we were like bluesy because they were notoriously like assholes to everybody yeah? yeah but they were like cool with us and um i i tell you a tour i turned down like we had the offer from the black crows like when they were like really hot to like be the opening act because chris and Rich really loved what we were doing. And I was such like a whatever, like hardhead. I was like, I'm not opening up for anybody, especially the fucking black pros, you know. Like so I've they made so many moves. <laughs> like I was when they were playing like sold out, like you know, multiple night amphitheaters. And I was like, Yeah, I'm not I'm not I'm not opening up for anybody. I'm fucking <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But like um yeah, then like yeah, but we yeah, but we played all those radio shows and it would be like, you know. The Offspring, it just depended what year it was, right? It was like yeah. The Offspring and uh, Fun Loving Criminals, who were also managed by my ex manager. And, uh, you know, fuck, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> there's a band called, did you ever hear that band, Shooty's Groove? Oh, yeah. Remember that? Yeah. They got some Power Man 5000, <laughs> they were contemporaries, Jasper and the Prodigal Sons. They're really interesting. Like, that was my partner they got dropped by geffen um you know uh, like everlast offspring g love fiona apple or um yeah i mean i'm, I'm tripping now i'm just trying to go back and think about all these bands that were on those big yeah but you played these huge radio shows and it would yeah. be like huge and the crowds would be going crazy because alternative radio was this thing and it was a generational thing and now it's pretty much gone except for you know some of the hits for me yeah for sure so that so the segue is that you i mean you rolled into the 2000s out of the out of the 1990s and you still put out records you still toured you you really haven't slowed down i mean like i said a lot a lot of the bands got burned out of the 90s and i've talked to a few people who uh basically took off the first five or ten years of the 2000s while they sort of licked their wounds and got day jobs and then got back into it but it, it but you you haven't really slowed down have you no, it's interesting because like kind of because, you know, Jack Johnson's success has obviously been a huge part of my story, like especially the second half. Um, or I should say this. I feel like I'm on the next third of my career, but the second, third part two was had a lot to do with Jack because, you know, 1998, we were, I discovered Jack through a friend. We put Jack out on a record and then one of our kind of like contemporaries ben harper and his manager his manager's got jp plunier kind of also was nosing around jack we didn't have the infrastructure in place unfortunately to kind of like bring him into our camp uh and jp kind of signed jack to his his little label and um and they made that first record then it was a runaway hit then and he basically wrote his ticket with the labels like I don't know what he signed with Universal, but they, I believe they own most of their record um, and made a lot, a lot of money because yeah. he basically, a lot, a lot of records. 
And thank that was great for me because they got a label deal and they signed us and Jack's buddy, former pro surfer Donovan Frankenrider, to deals in you know 2002 or 2003, and that was through Universal. And so the second part of my career then began as a brush fire records recording artist, and I was with them for 16 years, and that was only till. My last record, which we self-released on our Philadelphonic label, which is my first Grammy nomination. Um, and that so that's kind of the beginning of part three. So so yeah, so Jack's massive success and me being, you know, kind of you know, his kind of right hand musical partner in a lot of ways. Um and I was able to kind of surf his wave <laughs> and and that kind of took me to the next kind of fan base and new branding and kind of, you know, we kind of, so kind of as the alternative music thing was at the same time disappearing and all these big stations like, you know, WGRE and Philly were going under. And um, when all that was kind of dissipating right then, you know, I came along and just kind of, segued into being like more of still doing the same exact thing but now it's rootsy blues hip-hop instead of alternative hip-hop yeah i've really not changed too much maybe a little behind the scenes it's even like the way it's marketed right to a different yeah to a different audience and uh but it's like natural you know it was just kind of yeah. a natural yeah so you've got uh you've got a new album that just came out which is great um it's really it, i love the the that you brought different people in and it's really this diverse it's a it's a i imagine i don't imagine i know it's going to be a really good summertime album for me i know that listening to it it sounds like a windows down driving around um right. i'm landlocked in ohio so it's not a beach album for me but uh <laughs> but it feels like a beach album <laughs> yeah no this is uh the philadelphia mississippi is the new album and uh called the pilgrimage of the hip-hop blues and you know again you know like you know like the another big thing that's going to be a bookmark and and many artists career including mine was the situation with covid pandemic and um you know actually my fucking son is home today because he's got fucking covid on his last day of kindergarten which yeah. sucks <laughs> um but um yeah, man, like, um, you know, like Kebmo said it best, he goes, gee, what the fuck we've we been doing? I think there was a lot of sentiment with a lot of artists uh, that, that have been pumping on the years for so long and many a lot more longer than me. You know, it's like, there's so many songs written about that, like, you know, Neil Young's Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere. Everybody's just running around in circles, record, tour, but it's your whole life. And then all of a sudden, and no one would, no one wants to stop it, right? Because everybody wants to make money and everybody loves to play music and everybody loves to make records. Um, but especially you, you get, it's your job. So yeah. you, you have to work and you have aspirations as you get older that don't have to do with riding in the van that have to do with like buying a house and paying a mortgage and shit. <laughs> holding down a stable relationship you know what i'm saying so yeah. you know all of a sudden we're home so long story short that led to the making of the new record basically reconnected with 
uh, Chuck Treese is another '90s legend. You can you can look him up. Um, he uh, he and I reconnected. He's an old musical partner from Philadelphia. We started playing people's backyard parties, called them Solbacues, and that funded that gave us income stream. Social distance, backyard barbecues, powered by my Bose PA that Bose so generously, you know, gave us first as an artist rate, and then we became ambassador of Bose, and they gave us the next one for free. But that Bose system's fucking awesome. Showing people's backyard, not paying commissions, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's everything's off the book. You know, um, there's no hands in my pot, and then let's go make a record. So we go down now we, I call up my friend Luther Dickinson. Well, Luther's father, Jim Dickinson, produced my second record, oh, Coast Coast Hotel, in 1995. And so um, Luther and I have been friends since then. And we've been talking about doing something forever. Well, let's go, man. So, you know, we had a, a festival show book, like one of the first, like, real bookings we had during the pandemic played this festival in mississippi jackson mississippi we had an anchor we did soul because all the way down there we went to the studio in cold water mississippi and the 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 journey the pilgrimage of the hip-hop blues was for chuck and i to take our hip-hop blues into where that where where it's from and and immerse ourselves into the culture with the artists um both the emerging blues men and women and the established guys that are still around and and you know both like you know just just steep in it and uh we spent a week down there we had 10 special guests so like i'm just gonna run you down the guests list. unbelievable um upstarts um why well, is just upstarts this, this this wonderful new generation of emerging talent which if anybody thought the blues was in danger of like going away uh it's not like with people like Chris Stone, Kingfish Ingram, and John Tavius Willis, and um, Sharday Thomas is a, a Fife player, the granddaughter of Fife master um, Othar Turner, Cam Kimbrough, who is Junior Kimbrough's grandson, um, Trenton Ayers, whose father also played, or whose uncle played with um, Junior Kimbrough, Luther Dickinson, whose father Jim you know with these guys all grew up together um and um then old timers not sold but alvin young blood heart who was my okay label mate in the 90s um and then a, a, a legitimate old timer named rl boyce who um i think dan Auerbach was working with and kind of got some light on him a couple years back we got to got to spend the night with you know an evening recording with him and drinking had the best blues night of my life, like getting to sit down, play harmonica. Well, he basically played a whole set and we recorded the whole thing. It's going to be like its own record. We drank a whole bottle of whiskey the whole night. Like it was like my blues dream, you know, and yeah. to Jackson from Southern Avenue. Um, and uh, yeah, it was just unbelievable week of making music. And then the product is Philadelphia, Mississippi. And then we took it back north and put um, some rappers on it. Speech from Arrested Development, who's like my hugest influence. Um, Freddie Fox from New York, who's about as like, you know, 
hardcore new new york rappers you can find from like the 80s 90s and um the legendary schoolie d from philadelphia the nice. inventor of the rap so this record is like a huge like uh graduation from you know student of the blues into you know you know whatever whatever i am now but uh contemporary blues man and also to have that to be joined by some of my biggest hip hip hop influence on the album is, was it just goes to show you like if you hang around long enough right good things happen and if you get past all this shit in the 90s right yeah if you could live right it's it's so sad for the guys like you know shannon and and yeah. and and any other guys that that didn't make it out of that out of our 20s you know and, and or out of our 30s there's a lot, lot of life and music to be played after that you know so it, you, you think about those guys yeah and then the people that couldn't hold on to the career when you look back at the mistakes that a lot of us made i don't think you make the same mistakes as a grown man you know yeah, yeah, for sure. I know you have another interview coming up and I know you've got some kids running around. So I got a couple really quick, maybe okay. maybe rapid fire thing. Um, besides Jack Johnson, uh, other artists who have come up to you and been like, hey, I'm the, you're the reason that I've started or you're, you, like you inspired me to get started. Well, I won't say that they said those exact words, but I will tell you this. At our Pontiac, Michigan show in 1994, a lot of heavy hitters were there, except they were just kids or just people with an you know, starting their career. Kid Rock was there, Bob Ritchie, and Jack White was there. How do I know? Because they both told me that. And then when I think about Jack had such a vivid memory, he goes, I'll never forget you were fighting with your drummer on stage. He goes, You still with that guy? <laughs> I was like, yeah. But Jack of it looked back at like our early nineties presentation. I had the blue and white Italian guitar and like all the thrift store clothes and it was but as a band, we weren't dialed in as aesthetically as he, when he came out with the white stripes, to look at that album cover. <laughs> my look, you know? Yeah. And he would never admit it. But. Yeah. And and what about, uh, some, like I said, the Dig Me Out podcast is all about uh, 90s albums that maybe got overlooked or underappreciated. Um, I don't know in my head all 600 albums that have been reviewed so far, but throw out an, an artist or two that you think... Uh, is deserving of being uh, brought back up in, in 2022 to, to be re-examined. Yeah, I think I, I mentioned earlier, but Jasper and the Prodigal Sons put out the record Everything is Everything on Geffen Records. And shoot, you have a tough time finding it, but it's it's on YouTube. But it was such a classic example of alternative hip hop. And again, like he was my uh, my rapping partner and he's on my records a lot over the years. But that record, um, it was really sad because that was kind of a tragic, to me, a tragic story of like a brilliant, brilliant artist that kind of got into it with Wendy Goldstein, uh, who was a famous A&R woman who signed him and he got dropped and never could get it back. So Jasper and then, um, gosh, I don't know, like, yeah, maybe power. I mean, I threw him out earlier, but another Boston band contemporary we come up, came up with Power Man 5000. And of course, Morphine, who we also yeah. were, affiliated with because uh i had a crush on mark sandman's girlfriend and mark kind of took me under his wing and gave us our weekly residency at the plowing stars um where we got where they got signed out of and then we got signed out of and then jasper got signed out of so morphine mm -hmm. jasper power man 5000 
<laughs> I feel like they've done morphine, but I will definitely, uh, we'll, we'll take a look at the other two. And, and so, um, really, uh, again, sort of quick question. So you're on the road this summer, you're going to do dates with, is it dispatch and OAR? Yeah. Yeah. I think they're two thousands bands though, right? They're not. Yeah. They're not. Oh yeah. No, but just, <laughs> but just, uh, to promote that you're, you're going to be back out on the road. You're not, you're not in a, in a van oh, yeah. and doing 300 dates a year, but you're, you're touring this summer. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, no, we, 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 we stay out pretty busy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We stay out. So yeah, we're out. If anybody wants to find out more about me, they can go. Um, oh, and the last thing I'll say too, is that um, taking it from the nineties into the 2020s, our latest record Philadelphia, Mississippi is available as an NFT. So we're the first blues album that's available as an NFT. And if people want to find out about that or just any other way to get the record, uh, come check me out on Twitter at glove, glove and special sauce on Facebook at Philly glove on Instagram, on Discord. It's Juice Gang for all you crypto heads out there, and um, Philadelphonic.com is our homepage, and all those pages have the links for all of our things that we're slinging. <laughs> Very cool. Well, this has been a really fun conversation. Uh, great. Great talking to you. Um, I, I followed you, uh, you know, when the Sony guys were giving me free CDs, I think I had the first three or four CDs in my collection. Uh, after that, I probably dipped out a little bit uh, as, you know, the 2000s rolled around. But uh, it's cool being able to, to talk to you this many years later. Yeah, thanks, Chip, man. It was a pleasure. It's, it's just so fun to look back at those times. Like, I have such vivid memories of so many. And maybe the 90s, maybe we'll end it like this, but maybe the 90s died at, at Woodstock 99 which just a real quick story about we were playing the Thursday night. Um, we weren't booked on the actual festival. So we had a great show on a Thursday night pre stage. And then we got off stage and my manager said, um, he said, you know, uh, well, what happened was my buddy, Mark McGrath, uh, from sugar Ray, had got the flu. They fucking canceled and didn't show at fucking Woodstock 99. And would you play the set? The Woodstock 99 opened with James Brown, followed by G-Love and Special Sauce, followed by Jameer. Next, but the whole place fucking went to shit. <laughs> <laughs> the 90s, man. <laughs> so, so it's your fault. <laughs> Very I'll never cool. He was being thrown on stage, not just at us, but everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very cool. All right, well, thanks a lot. And um, I guess that's it. All right, brother. All right, take take it easy. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. 